So prayer is probably something most, if not everyone in here, has, uh, has heard about. It's probably something most, uh, if not all of us, have actually done. Um, I read a recent survey, Barna did a survey, uh, of the adults, they surveyed 94% of American adults that they uh, surveyed said that they've prayed to someone or about to someone or something about someone or something in the last three months. Like, like I think it's safe to say that most of us in here have said some sort of prayer, even if it's just the, the help me God prayer, you know, where you've gotten yourself into a mess and then all of a sudden now the awareness of God is real and you're like, God, I need you to help me. And so even if it's just something as simple as like, God help me, we've, we, we've prayed. We know that, that prayer is something that is important. I mean, it's foundational as a follower of Jesus. We hear it talked about uh, in the Bible. There are 650 prayers recorded. There are 450 answered prayers recorded. The Gospels uh, tell us that Jesus prayed at least 25 times. That, that's that we know of. And Paul in his writings said that we should pray 40 times. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said that we should pray without ceasing. Now, when you think of that, don't, don't think like head, heads bowed, eyes closed, like you kind of go through your day and don't pay attention to anything because you're just in this never-ending dialogue with, uh, with God and it's uninterrupted. That would take like distracted driving to a whole other level, like if you're, if you're not looking at the road. So that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that there would be an ongoing dialogue that's happening throughout the day, that there would be a rhythm and a consistency to not just pursuing God, not just talking to him, but listening and receiving. Prayer is more than just talking. It's a dialogue. It's, it's receiving from him as well. It's like having a conversation with your, uh, with your spouse or one of your kids. Like when you wake up in the morning, um, in our house, we say good morning to each other. But for me, there's no reason to greet anyone else the rest of the day. Like we've said good morning. We all know each other. We're good to go. Jen, will every time I walk in a room, she always says hi. And I'm always like, why are we saying We just... Like, we do this every day, all the time. But it's, it's that, but, but, you, but you get what I'm saying. Like, there's a dialogue that starts, but then it just sort of, sort of continues. You can jump back into conversations you had before. Um, you can start new conversations, but there's just this relational connection that makes this ongoing dialogue possible. And so we're told that that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, if you wear one of these blessed bands, uh, some of you wear it just because you think it's trendy, but it actually means something. The B stands for what? B in... Be in prayer. Like, this is foundational to living the mission of God. We've got to stay connected to the God of the mission. And so when you think about it, we know that prayer is something that's important. I think prayer is something we all do at least on occasion. But would you classify your life as a prayer? Would you classify your prayer life as satisfied? Like, when you think about your prayer life, would, would a word like effective come to mind? Or maybe would it be a word like ritualistic or frustrating, discouraging, maybe embarrassing? For some of us, maybe just straight up non-existent or maybe even self-centered. I'll be honest with you, I find myself in this rut far too often where I will step back and look at my pursuit of God relationally and like, man, all it seems like all I'm talking to him about lately is things that benefit me. And I mean, I, I've, I've prayed some incredibly self-centered prayers over the last few months. I mean, I've prayed for gas prices to go down. Hope that benefits you, but that's really just about me. Um, 
I literally, I'm not even joking. I've prayed that bacon would go on sale. Like, I have, like, thick-cut bacon. Like, it's getting out of control, and I'm like, God, just show me that you're real. Just let bacon go on sale. Um, I have prayed in the last few months, pulling into uh, a, a busy area, a busy uh, parking lot, and I prayed that there would be a good parking spot for me. Um, I've prayed to make traffic lights, prayed for my own health. I prayed for my kids to make sports teams. And now listen, I'm not saying that asking God for things is bad. I actually think it's good. Asking God to give us things that, that we desire, there's nothing wrong with that. Asking God to deliver us out of messes that we created in and of itself isn't wrong. But the problem for many of us is that's the sole and primary focus of our prayers. And because of that, we are left feeling disappointed, discouraged, and oftentimes convinced that God doesn't even answer prayer, that prayer doesn't work. And I look at the early church. Like, we're walking through this theme for the year devoted. In the last uh, three months of the year, that's going to be the focus. And so this series is, is set up to, to proceed that, to go into that. Look at the early church. And I see a group of people that were devoted to prayer, and they prayed effectively. Like, like, like they, prayed, they prayed things, and then you saw God respond. But they were praying for things that, that were significant to the kingdom. And, and, and I look at what happened in the book of Acts, and I, and I look at the connection that Jesus had with the Father, and I look at that, and I, and I often think, like, man, that, that's what I want to experience in my life. I want to dialogue with God and have it shape the way I live my life. I want to dialogue with God and have it shape the way I function as a husband and as a father, and even as, I, as a, a pastor, as I lead us as a church. And I wonder if that's what the disciples were, were experiencing as well when they went to Jesus in the book of Luke and they said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Because on the surface, that would be an interesting and unusual question from this group of guys. These were Jewish boys. They had learned how to pray from a very young age. In fact, they've been praying their entire lives. For, for this group, they, they would put to shame the majority of us if you just simply looked at how often that, that they prayed. They recited prayers. They said some words. They even prayed at home and in the temple. But clearly there was something missing. Clearly they're asking for something more specific. They watched as Jesus had interactions with the Father, and they saw how those interactions impacted the way Jesus did his ministry. They saw the, the, this connection that Jesus had with the Father and how Jesus would pursue the Father, and then from that, he would then go and act. In fact, before Jesus chose any of the 12 disciples to follow him, that was preceded by a season of prayer and fasting as he prepared, as he connected relationally with the Father in order to go and accomplish what he was called to do. And I think when we look at Jesus' life, a lot of times we have a little bit of a disconnect, and we, we look at Jesus' life, and we just think he had this constant awareness that he was that he was God and that he always just knew what to do. And so he would come up on a situation and then, you know, like a superhero, just kind of run in the phone booth and come out with a cape. And I guess instead of an S, a big J for Jesus. And he would just like feed the hungry and raise the dead and heal the sick. And it all just sort of happened. But if you study the Gospels, if you look at Jesus, you will see a direct correlation between time with the Father and how he did ministry, time with the Father and how he lived his life. And I got to think that the disciples looked and saw that. I got to think that they saw that there was something about G different about Jesus' interaction with the Father than simply reciting seven prayers a day. They saw a connection that Jesus had with the Father, and they said, I want that. 
Yeah, have you ever been around someone that's really good at something that you wish, wish you were good at? And you think, man, I wish I could do that. Like, be around a couple uh, uh, that has a really healthy marriage, and you'll, people will be saying all the time, like, man, when I get married, I want to I have what they have. Or like a golf swing. Like, you, look at, you go out and golf with somebody, you're like, man, I wish I could swing a golf club like he does. I don't know that I've ever had anyone say that about me. Um, but I've said it about many people that I've golfed with. Like, man, I want that golf swing. And so the disciples are looking at Jesus and they're saying, we want to experience what it is that you're experiencing, this connection that you have with the Father that impacts the way you minister. They saw Jesus in the early church, we saw it as well, these effective prayers that had eternal significance. And so they asked Jesus to teach them, teach them how to pray. And two different times in the Gospels were given what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It's in, it's in the book of Luke, but then it's also uh, probably more famously in Matthew chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. And so here's what we're going to do. We've got the prayer up here. Uh, where are my Catholics at? I know we got some Catholics in here. We went King James English for you. Um, Baptist, if you're like me, this is, I was raised to, to, to pray this prayer uh, this way. But I want us to recite this together. So after this manner, therefore, pray ye. We're going to do this together. You ready? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, Father, right now we come to you. We know that you have given us the gift of prayer as a way to connect relationally with you. God, I pray that over the course of the next several weeks, we would learn, uh, learn more, that we would learn to understand you a little bit better. We know we never fully will, but you revealed so much to us about yourself. We know that you desire to have a relationship with us, an ongoing dialogue with us, and I pray that we would come to a better understanding of what that even means and that we would pursue it. And so we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So this is the, the Lord's Prayer. Um, most of us have probably read it before. Most of us have probably recited it. But it's actually Jesus' version of a prayer called the Amidah Prayer. It's 18 benedictions that the Jews would pray. And it originated 200 years before Jesus was born. So Jewish boys have been raised to pray, to pray this prayer. Jesus would have been raised uh, to pray this prayer. And so rabbis regularly would take this prayer and they would reduce the 18 benedictions down and they would, they would sort of summarize it a little bit and, and, and maybe, maybe in essence say all of the things are important, but if you're only going to connect with a handful of them, these are the ones that, that you need to connect with. And so this is Jesus' sort of stripped down version of this prayer. And he left out some pretty significant things. He left out some things like references to the God of, prayers to the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Things like pleas for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the restoration of the temple. And he left out some intentionally, he left out intentionally some very Jewish-centered ideas. So Jesus takes this prayer and says, this is a prayer that should not just appeal to the Jews. This is a, a prayer that should appeal to all people as, as the kingdom of God is expanding beyond Jerusalem and Judea and is moving into the outer edges of the world. And so he puts together a version of this prayer that's accessible to, uh, to all of us. 
And he starts it by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's interesting that he would start here, but he starts here because this is, this is foundational. Our view of God is foundational to our pursuit of God. How I view God will determine how I approach God. For instance, if I, if I view God as angry, when I do something wrong, what am I going to do? I'm going to hide. I'm certainly not going to run to him. I'm going to run from him. If I view God as absent, maybe he created all of this, and, and when humanity took it sideways, God was like, whoa, like that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. You guys, you made your, your bed. You guys can lie in it, and God is just sort of absent. If you view God as absent, prayer to you is going to be something that you're disinterested in. Why would you want to pray to a God that's absent? If you view God as immovable, and I'll be honest with you, this is where one of the, the tension points and one of the struggles I have. I, with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, like trying to, to, to make sense of it, which I never fully will. There are times where I'm praying for something and I, in the back of my mind, I'm going, God, you already know what you're going to do. I can ask for it all day long, but you're already going to do this. So there are times where I'm like, one thing I say to our staff in meetings is, I'll never waste your time. If I already know what we're going to do, we're not going to sit in the office in our weekly meeting and have a think tank. I'll just tell you what we're going to do. And there are times where I feel like, um, I know this isn't right, but this is just how I feel about it sometimes, where I feel like God has me in this think tank, but he's already decided what he's going to do. So I'm throwing ideas at the board. I'm asking him to, to, to do things. I'm asking him to do things that I think are, are significant to the kingdom. But in the back of my mind, I'm going, God, you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway. So it really doesn't matter what I say. And when you, when you struggle with that tension and when you find yourself in that place, the natural progression is to go, well, if, if he's immovable, if he's already made up his mind, why bother? And so Jesus brings this prayer and says, in order to pursue God, you have to have, first of all, you have to have a right understanding of who he is. And he says it starts right here that he is father. He says, our father in heaven. Our father, calling Jesus our father, would have been challenging to the disciples for a couple of reasons. The first is it would have gone against everything culturally that it meant to address somebody of prominence and power. It would have seemed like a disrespectful way to approach him. The more important the person was, the longer the greeting was. It's like when Caesar Augustus would come to your town, you wouldn't just introduce him as Caesar Augustus. It would be Caesar Augustus, you know, the, 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 the great one, the son of God. You've conquered this. You've conquered that. You've destroyed this. You rule this. And you'd give this laundry list of accomplishments because he's not just Caesar Augustus. He's all of the things that he's done. It's like if, if you're a golf fan, when you watch a, a golf tournament with Tiger Woods, the introduction on the first tee, that's a good time to take a bathroom break because for the next five minutes, they're going to list off all of the incredible accomplishments. It's not just Tiger Woods. It's Tiger Woods, winner of 82 professional events. It's Tiger Woods, winner of 15 major championships, the only one to hold all four majors at one time. It's this whole list of things that, that he's done. It's not just the man. It's all of the accomplishments. And so for the Jews, they would have viewed God not only as God, but God was all of the things that he did. And in order to come into his presence, you had to acknowledge all of these things. So Jesus says of all of the things that God has accomplished, maybe the greatest thing, maybe the thing that is the most significant to him is that he is father and you and I are dearly loved children. And so Jesus says, our father. He doesn't say my father. He doesn't say, guys, this is what works for me. He says this works for us. You are now a part of of this family. The second reason they would have struggled with it was it would, have, it would have gone against their current view of God and what they knew of God. 
Like to, to the Hebrews, God was provider, healer, defender, deliverer. He was Yahweh. All of those things which are true. But he certainly would not have been father. And so Jesus is introducing them to a new view of God, inviting them into the relational view of God that he had. Not just as a sovereign Lord, but as a loving, present, and accessible father. Jesus referred to God as Father more than anything else. In the book of John alone, he refers to Jesus as Father over 100 times. In fact, there's only three chapters. I can't remember the three. I think it's, uh, I'll, I'll get them wrong, but nobody's writing this down. So it's, um, uh, it's only three chapters in John that he doesn't refer to him, uh, doesn't refer to him as Father. So God is Father. Now, it's been said that our view of God, we view God as our Heavenly Father, the way we view our earthly father. So our view of God as heavenly father is shaped by what we experienced with the, the, the father figures we have, we have here. So when I say that God is father, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? I know we've got a room in here with people. Some of us are thinkers and some of us are feelers. I, I, I typically am a thinker. This is what I know. This is what I operate in. This is what makes sense. But some of you are feelers, so it may become, maybe it's more of an emotional question. How do you feel about the image of God as Father? For some of us, the image of God as Father is easy to relate to because you had a great experience with your, with your dad growing up. He was present. He was there for you. He provided for you. He loved you. There, there was an emotional support and connection. And when you go, man, God is Father, like I, I could get on board with that. But probably the majority of us in here, that's not the experience that we had. So for some of you, when, you, when we talk about God being Father, you're like, I'm okay with God being God. I'm okay with the deity, the creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe. I'm okay with all of that. But the Father thing creates a, a personal connection that, that maybe some walls come up right away because for you it's words like hurt, disappointment, abandonment, absent abusive, or resentment. And so to some of us, looking to God as a, as a loving father is comforting. And to others of us, it's challenging. But even if you had a great relationship with your father, didn't he still let you down sometimes? Didn't he overreact? Wasn't he flawed? And so everything that our earthly fathers, good or bad, everything that our earthly fathers weren't, our heavenly father is. This quote sent to me this week, um, I love it. It says this, God is not an inflated view of your earthly father. God is the perfected view of your earthly father. That everything our fathers weren't, he is. And Jesus modeled that relationally. Jesus showed us what that looked like in his relationship with the Father. And we see in that relationship, we see a God, a Father that is present, that is faithful, that is protective, that is accepting, that is welcoming, that will never hurt us, betray us, desert us, or shame us. Jesus is inviting us into this family relationship to see God not only as a deity, but to see him relationally, to see him as Father. And for you and I to see him that way is important, but it's also important to understand the way he views us, that he sees us as dearly loved children that he's chosen. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. It says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Before you were even born, God loved you. Before, you, before we did anything stupid, God loved us. Right, right, right. Because we go, man, look at all the things that I've did. How could God love me? Well, God chose to love me before I did any of that. It says he loved us and he chose us to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Verse five, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. We are able to be holy and without fault in the eyes of the Father because of the work of the Son, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When you put your faith and trust in that, when you believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for your sins, to reconcile you back to God, when you believe that in your heart, confess it with your mouth, immediately Scripture teaches that we are now in Christ. So so to be in Christ means that everything that is true about Jesus is now true about me because I'm in Christ. Not because of anything I did, but because of what he's done. The analogy we use is the water bottle. If you take a water bottle uh, that's full of water, anything that's true about the bottle is true about the water as long as the water is in the bottle. If you throw the bottle, you throw the water. If you lose the bottle, you lose the water. Whatever's true about the, the bottle is true about the water because the water's in it. Whatever is true about Jesus is true about us because we are in Christ. So that means when, you, when you're struggling and you go, man, I, I, I don't even know what God thinks of me. He's got to be embarrassed. He's got to be ashamed. What you, all you have to do to understand how God views you is ask the question, how does God view Jesus? Because everything that's true about Jesus is true about you because you're in Christ. So we know how God the Father views the Son. This is my beloved Son, and Him I am well pleased when Jesus was baptized. What had Jesus done up to that point? Nothing. He was the son of a carpenter. He hadn't, he hadn't died for the sins of the world yet. He hadn't done what God the Father sent Him to do, but even before He did what God the Father sent Him to do, He says, this is my beloved Son, and Him I am well pleased. Everything that is true about Jesus is true about us because we are in Christ. And so we understand, the, when we have the proper view that God is Father and we understand that God views us as loving children, I think it reshapes the way we approach him. That when we know that we are accepted, when we know that, that we have access to him anytime we want it, that he's the creator of the universe, but he's Father. Tim Keller said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. My kids know that they can text me or call me anytime. It doesn't ma- I guarantee you I'm going to get text messages right now. Um, <laughs> that they can text me or call me anytime, and I'm going to answer the phone. Some of you, we've been sitting in meetings together, and I'll tell you, hey, hold on a second, I've got to take this. A lot of times they did something dumb, but, or they need something like, I'm like, this, could, this couldn't have waited. Um, but they know I'm going to answer. They know I'm going to respond. They know and understand that they have access because they're my children. And we have to understand that that's the relationship that God wants you and I to have with him. And then he goes on and he talks about God. He says, like, foundationally is that he's father. 
But he says, as you understand that, that he's, <laughs> as you understand that, that he is father, uh, don't forget all of the great things that he is. It says our father in heaven. Now in heaven doesn't mean like heaven, eternity, you know, this far off place we're going to go to when we die. When it says heaven, it's talking about the heavens, like the heavens around us. The God who is in the heavens, who created the heavens, who's above the heavens. The God who is, is bigger than big, but at the same time as father is, is closer than close. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means to be set apart. It's, it's unlike anything else. Uh, I used to collect uh, baseball cards when I was growing up, and you'd buy these, these, uh, these sets of, of cards, and the majority of them you didn't really care about, but you would get a, a few in that box that you would be like, man, this one's special. And so I'd put the special ones in these special cases because I wanted them to stay in mint condition. I remember uh, at one time uh, my Barry Bonds rookie card meant something. If you're a baseball fan, it doesn't really mean anything now. Uh, but, it, but it was important then, right? I, and uh, I ranted in the first service about Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. Yes, he did steroids, but so was everybody else. So my thinking is, like right now, let them all do steroids and see who can hit it the furthest. Like it <laughs> just seems to work. Uh, but at one time, that card was really significant to me. So I would set it apart from all of the others. Or maybe some of you, grandma or your, your mom. My, growing up, my mom, we had china for like special occasions. I grew up 18 years in that house. We never had a special occasion to use that stuff. <laughs> but it's, but it's, it probably happened after I moved out. Um, but, but you have this special china cabinet and these plates and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, no, no, that's set apart from everything else. That's special, right? And God says, my name is not common. My name doesn't belong with the rest of the silverware and the rest of the baseball cards. I'm not like any other God. My name is to be set apart. My name is to be, is to be hallowed. And the way God's name is hallowed happens in two parts. Number one, God's part. And then as his loving children, as his representatives, is our part. He says, hallowed be thy name. That's, I always took it as a, uh, as a statement, but it's actually a request. He's saying, God, may your name be hallowed. May you keep your name hallowed. God is going to do his part. We, we don't even have to ask God to make his name holy. God is going to do that. But the question for you and I is, are we doing our part to keep God's name holy? The opposite of hallowed is to make something common. It's to make God appear common like any other, like any other God, like any other religion. And the only way God's name is made common is through us. There's an there's a interesting story in the book of Numbers. So Moses, God used Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they complained all the time. Like there are numerous chapters where it's like God's like, Moses, get out of the way, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses is like, no, like your name's at stake, you promised, like you, you got to do this thing. And then there are other times where Moses was like, God, I wish you'd kill him. And so there's this, this constant back and forth. They, they complained about things all the time. They often complained about food and water. And so in Numbers, they're complaining again, God, you let us out into the wilderness to die. You've forsaken us. And Moses is like, how many times have we been down this road? And so God says to Moses, go take them to this rock, speak to the rock, and command that water will come forth and water will come forth. So Moses, and I totally understand where Moses was coming from, goes over to the rock, 
But he doesn't just speak to the rock. He smacks the rock, probably to keep from smacking some of the people. But I just get the sense. He's like, okay, you bunch of ungrateful, entitled baby. Here's your water. I hope you choke on it or at least get dysentery. Like, I just feel like that's kind of how the scene played out. And he smacks the rock. No big deal from my perspective. I'm like, Moses, I'm with you. But then God pulls Moses and Aaron aside. And in Numbers 20, verse 12, this is what God says to them. He says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, watch what he says next, to uphold me as holy or hallowed in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So the reason Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land with the nation of Israel, the reason he died first and Joshua led them in, goes right back to this story. God says, you didn't believe in me enough to keep my name sacred, to keep my name hallowed in the eyes of the people. He says, you made me look common. He says, you made me look like every other God, every other angry God that these people have grown up to worship. You think about the gods in Egypt, all of the things that they would do, man, we we better dance just right so we'll get rain. You know, we've got to do, offer something significant to this God or goddess of fertility so we can have children. And they constantly lived this life trying to appease the gods, trying to earn favor with the gods. And God said to Moses and Aaron, you made me look like every other angry God that now the people have to do something in order to to curry favor once again in my sight. And he says, because of that, because you didn't hallow my name, I'm not going to let you into the promised land. God's name is the representation of his character, is the representation of everything that we are. And you and I make his name holy or we make his name common in the way we live our lives. The things we say, the things we do, the things we post on social media are telling people a story about our God. Are we representing him in a way that is making him appealing or is making him appalling? God is going to hallow his name. The only question is, are we? Are we going to make him look common Are we going to project an image like every other God and religion out there that says you aren't good enough, that you have to change in order for him to love you? That you have to believe and value and think and say and vote like we do in order for God to receive and accept and embrace you? It's interesting, in Roman mythology, there was a God that was viewed as a father figure. But he wanted nothing to do with, the, with this material world because of how evil and broken it was. And I think sometimes we project an image that our God is the same way. That fix your mess, and then maybe that God will love you. And, and, and doesn't it feel like some of our jacked up homes where we're constantly trying to earn the favor of our earthly fathers? And God says, the way you live your life, are you projecting an image of me that makes me look common, that makes me look the same as as any other God? You've got to work. You've got to do good in order to be loved. 
We are the lens through which the world views our God. And so Jesus says, our God, whose, whose name is hallowed, whose name is set apart. It reminds me of my dad. My dad used to say to me before I'd go out, he'd say, son, don't forget, I gave you a good name. Go, go represent it well. And God says, you are my children. Go and represent me well. This God whose name is hallowed, who is above the heavens, is the same God that calls us children that we can go to as father. Prayer, simply put, is an ongoing dialogue between a loving parent and their child. And I think when we view God as father and we understand the view that God has of us, it reshapes the way we approach him. Because if, if you were raised like me, the image I had of God was that he was the godfather. So anytime I did something wrong, I'd run and hide from him. But if you view him as a loving father, you don't run from him, you run to him. When I was growing up, I remember when I got my first speeding ticket. I did not tell my parents until doing the math, I'm like, the insurance company's about to contact them, and I don't want that on, on my head as well, so I told them at the last possible second. Fast forward a couple of weeks ago, my oldest daughter got her first speeding ticket. I promised I wouldn't tell you what it was for, but she deserved it. Um, <laughs> uh, but the first thing she did when she came home was she came to me. I think it's that, that, that image of God that, that when I was a kid, no, run from it. And hopefully the way I've raised my children now and the image we have of God now is we don't have to run from him. We can run to him Amen. because he is a loving father. And listen to what it says in, in Romans, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8. We walked through Romans, but I just want to read this again because I think it, it just really captures the, the essence of what we're talking about. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. We don't have to run from him. We can run to him. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So the, the, the term Abba is an Aramaic term. Uh, it was so significant, they didn't even bother translating into Greek. They're like, let's just leave it. Like, it, it looks really cool like it is. But Abba is a term of affection and also a term of, uh, of dependence. You cry out when you're in need. You cry out when you're in trouble. You cry out when you're afraid. It says we cry out Abba. Abba is a, is a, is a term for a small child to a parent. It would be in our, our culture like the word daddy or, or papa, like when our kids were little, the things that they, would, that they would call us. It's a term that acknowledges that we need you and we trust you. I want you to, to bow your heads with me. I want to, you to process a couple of things this morning. Um, number one, how does knowing that God is my loving father change the way I, I approach him? And then when you go home today, I want you to do something for me. I want you to make a list of characteristics of a loving father. Like whether you had a good father or not, like if you're thinking, man, a loving father, these are the characteristics that, 
a loving father would have. Uh, and, and keep them sane, not like you'd give me a million dollars every day, uh, but just like realistic things. What, would a love, what, what, what are characteristics of a loving father? And then I want you to Google. So let's say you said compassionate. I want you to Google Bible verses about, a compassion, about God being compassionate. You know, I think you'll find is every single thing that you list that describes a loving father, you can find in scripture things that tell us that God is all of those things. He's present, he's merciful, he's compassionate. He's accessible, he's accepting. And then I want you to meditate on that scripture this week. Pray that scripture out loud. Preach it to yourself that God is all of those things that you need in a loving father. And then I want you to approach him this week as father. The way Jesus often approached him. Go to him as father. So, Father, now we come to you. We know that you are all of the things that you said you are. You can do all of the things that you say you can do. And as great as you are, you still call us your children. And it's from that foundation that all of our life all of our pursuit of you flows. We come to you as Father. We cry out to you as Father. We do it in the name of Jesus. Because of him we can have access.